Hi, all, and welcome back to another episode of There's Danger Here. I'm Connie. And I'm Sam. I brought another case to you from California. So this episode was actually recommended to me by So hopefully we do it justice today. I hope so. There's like added pressure on this one, I feel like. I know, right? (laughs) Shoot. So uh, we're going to discuss some serious atrocities at a young age, whether or not they should be given the opportunity to parole and continue with the life. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. So when I think of teenagers getting together and possibly getting into trouble, my mind goes to smoking weed, driving around the city, possibly spray painting, things like that, petty crimes, little acts of vandalism. Yeah. Like the typical teenage, teenage years. Yes. Tell mom I'm at my friend's house and really at my crush's house or whatever. Mm-hmm. But yeah. in my hometown, we used to tell our parents that we're sleeping over and then go to bonfires in the woods. Oh, yeah. We did a lot of like tailgating. Yeah. We always said we're going to go tailgate up in the mountains. But that's all I think of. Yeah. I do not immediately think that three 16 year olds and a 17 year old would be planning multiple murders. Oh. Lammy. When was this? Have we. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm jumping ahead now. I'm like, I'm like, whoa, okay. I know. Okay, I'm ready. I'm ready. But Darren Lee, Ron Ray Anderson, Marty Spears, also known as Marty Jackson, and Jeffrey Marie, and Jeffrey Marie is a 17 year old. The other three are 16. We're planning horrific events. On June 24th, 1979, the four teens knocked on a door in Newman, California, finding Leonard Luna the house's caretaker. Leonard was taking care of the home of Bernard Marks, who was out of town. Around 11.30 to midnight, two of the boys knocked on the door asking to buy some gas from Leonard as their car had run out. After getting gas, they left the house, but returned 15 minutes later and asked to use the phone. From court transcripts, it sounds like they may have used the phone, and then as they went to leave, one of them just turned around and pulled the pistol out telling Leonard to, quote, hit the floor and close his eyes, end quote. Leonard did as he was told and then heard a car drive up when somebody whistled, at which time more people got out and entered the house. The four teens then beat him in the head with a revolver, splitting his scalp open. Marty repeatedly told the other teenagers that he wanted to, quote, blast Leonard because he had seen his face. The rest of the group was against this. The group then ransacked the house, taking a large safe on wheels, two watches, guns, and a switchblade knife that they decided to use during their next assault. Leonard was able to identify Marty Spears and Daniel as the first two had originally come through the door that night. It appears that these four used Leonard as a test run, and I say this because court reports state that the four had been planning on going on their main target for two weeks after learning, they may have large amounts of cash in the home that they were going to raid. Uh, okay. There's a lot to unpack here. Like, so that's just the first thing that they did. There's 16, give or take? Yeah. Three of them are 16. One of them is 17. 17. And so we have three 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds. And it's pretty, like, that's why I was curious what time it was. My brain instantly went to, like, social media. Yeah, and like you know, TikTok and how everyone's like, let's steal cars. That's fun. Like stupid stuff like that. Yeah. But 
really is quite illegal. Um, but this is long before that. Like, I just don't guess mate, bragging rights in your school or short of like trying to join a gang. I don't understand why 16 year olds would think that that's what would be the fun option in life. Yeah. So it sounds like they were after money, which is why the next couple is their target. However, I think because it really, this was like the night before. So it sounds like Leonard's test run, like that house's test run, like, how can we make it work? Is it smooth? Can we get, you know, how do we get in? How do we get out? So, and I hear, so in this, right, the first two go in, they get gas from Leonard, they leave, they come back. So are they casing the joint when they do this? Like, why did they enter the house multiple times instead of just when the gas, like when we went to get the gas, got the gas, and then have somebody come up? But they come back to the house 15 minutes later and are like, hey, now can you use the phone, which again, this is all pre-cell phone, everything's landline. That part makes sense. Like, I need to use your phone. Maybe the car is still broken down. But it's just a weird, why did we even do that? I feel like maybe you're, and I, I doubt that 16-year-olds thought this through, but like my mind goes to like, you're sort of easing this guy's like, like alarm towards you like you've interacted with him once it went well he gave like helped you out and then when you come back he's he now already sort of knows you and his guard is a little less like he'd be more willing to be like yeah come on in guys like i get it like clearly are broken down I, like i don't know like I think- even, even in court transcripts he so the kids get the gas leave go to the phone and as they're leaving, then they pull the gun out. So they're out of the house again? Oh, yeah, that's... They were scared. I, yeah, I think that, that they had first-time jitters. I yeah, guess, which yeah, they were scared. Maybe just don't do it. They don't were waiting it. for the, like, the bold the bold one to, like, make the first move. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so now we're going to get at, into the meeting. Bill Ranzo and his wife, Catherine, were an ordinary couple living in Modesto, California on June 25th. So like I said, this is just one day after Leonard. Bill and Catherine hosted a dinner party for Bill's parents, Sam and Marie Ranzo, two of Mark's cousins, Mike and Michelle, first with last names, Narzano and Mark's friend, Michelle, uh, as well as Mark, which is their tenure. After which, all the children went to Phil's parents' house, which was located about a block away. That that night, Mark, who again is 10 years old at this time, decided to spend the night at his grandparents, something he had done numerous times before. At this time, Phil was 30 years old, working as a pharmacist, and his wife was 29 years old and had already owned a shop. He was the daughter of a Turlock police officer, Joseph Moore. So, police officer. Yeah, and like probably a community favorite. Yeah. Like everyone knows, the beauty shop owner. She was young. She was probably cute, and now she's a daughter of a police officer. Everyone loved her. Mm-hmm. While the sun was away, it appears the two were having a relaxing evening of just watching television. And there was a knock on their door sometime after 11 p.m. So they're sticking to the late night hours. 
Bill got up and opened the door to four teenagers who stated that they were out of gas and asked to use the phone. Phil, being a kind man, offered them some gas in a can that was in their garage, directing them inside. But the four teenagers were using the need of gas as a ruse, again, to gain access to the house. Marty and Jeffrey held guns to Phil, forcing him into the garage. Just like they did with Leonard, they hogtied Phil. Then, finding Mark's baseball bat, the teens used this to savagely beat Bill in the head. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. They hit him so hard that his skull fragmented and was disfigured from the trauma. Wow. But they weren't content with this. They then found a hatchet and sliced his eyelids and throat. What? Why are we adding torture? What was Uh, the point of this? And finally, they stabbed him in the neck. Autopsy reveals that Phil died from a mixture of these injuries, including six blows to his head and a stab wound to his neck. Um, this is like, it's so I feel like, and this is going to be probably slightly unpopular, but I feel like kids who are still like 16, like they're still children. And I really believe that parents should have some form of responsibility in these situations. I know that is you cringing, but like at least show evidence that you have intervened at some point in your child's life because you've noticed these things are going on. Like your kid isn't just all of a sudden going to slice off someone's eyelids without you. If you are present and like know your child, you might know that there's something going on. Like you'd have to. Right? Like, or am I naive? No, I'm totally going to disagree with you there. Uh, I have seen plenty of wonderful parents. Their kids turn out to be monsters. And so, yeah, I know people are always like, well, nature versus nurture. This is definitely not nurture. Something is ingrained in them. Something has happened. It's not necessarily the parents' fault. So now we're punishing the parents for trying? No, so I think, like, if if a parent had, like, if there's any indication that this child had, like, potentially this inside of them, like, any indication at all, let's say they, I don't know, they were, like, feeding kids up on in school or whatever it is, like, I feel like as long as there's evidence that the parent, like, attempted to, like, remediate their behaviors in some way, then the parents exonerated from the issue. They were active. They knew that there was a problem and they attempted to help fix it. But like, I feel like, I don't know. And maybe this kid was fine, but. And also there can be no signs to them in the home or maybe the parents are at this time. What if both of them are working and they're out of the house all the time? They don't see everything. Yeah. There's so many layers where you can't just be like, oh no, get the parents. What the the parent in jail. No, I, I don't really. I don't know. I, just, I think there has to be very specific clues to either neglect or problems, and then they get tried for those, not for what the child's done. Yeah. So, like, in I think it was Michigan, there's a gun case out there, and the case is always a hot topic. But they knowingly let their child have access to guns, knowing he had issues. Okay, at that point, yes, the parents can be held liable knowingly handing me like here you go i think they even instigated some of this some of the court transcripts it was pretty crazy was that the parade shooting there was a recent like there was one recently i feel like on like christmas day a few years ago 
that was in Michigan. Mm-hmm. And it was a teenager who had, like, been told he shouldn't have guns, and the parents, like, bought it for him yeah. and gave it back well, to him. Well, and they also made really inflammatory statements to the child that are then, I think, being used in these, in, like, the court system, and that's what's causing it. But unless you have some proof like that, how are you going to prove right. they're okay. the problem? And, okay, we'll come to this in 20 years, unless your daughter turns out perfect and but no i'm i'm agreeing i'm i'm actually i'm like nodding my head in agreement with you first of all knock on wood like that i don't have to like be like oh i should eat my words there but uh yeah i i i maybe being a little extreme there it just like it infuriates me when and it's teenagers and you think you're not responsible enough to like how drink. Are you, how are you going yeah, out doing this for exactly clients? like I get it. Where are your parents? That's what I think. But I know, I know that sixteen-year-olds who care. Your parents could be holding your hand and you'd still attempt to do it. So they could have said again, like we were talking about earlier. They could have been like, "Oh, I'm sleeping over at this right. person's house." And right. Okay. And I can guarantee they were. Talking uh, about I was growing up. Parents did not always check in on that. Like yeah. So, it's for I'll see you later. You know, and were you there? Right. You went there just so you're not a liar, but then you left. Then you left. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> Catherine was forced into the bathroom where she too was hogtied. The teens then set about torturing her as well. Should they cut her face and her eyes? She was stripped of her clothes and then sexually assaulted. Stabbed in the throat with a switchblade that was taken the night before, and then struck in the head with the back of an axe. The stab to the throat was fatal. The axe was left in the hallway in the bathroom. One of the knives was dropped near the couple's home office and was found by investigators as they worked the scene. Time of death for the two was estimated between 11 p.m. on the 25th to 1 a.m. on the 26th of June. The rope used to tie the couple was matched as the same rope rope used to tie up Leonard. Mm. Yeah. This to me so far is like a mate say this every episode about it. Like, this might be the weirdest, like the most bizarre so far. Mentally, like this is like what they're doing for fun. Quote unquote fun. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's like a group of like that's the part that's so strange too. Is that there's there's four of them. Like I want to know the personalities of each of them. Who is the leader? Who is the like little meek one that was a yeah. little bit unsure but went along with it? Like I don't know. There's I would love to have known these kids. Yeah. Well, so to me that reminds me of you know kind of the group mentality where something gets going and then things spiral because the group wants to conform yeah so there's and in this they think that um the 17 year old is kind of the leader of the group who tends to seem the most violent compared to the other ones but it's just like all right so they just there's a leader who's very strong and the other ones are kind of just going along Mm -hmm. and then everything just gets worse and worse and one person does something and then another does something and it just becomes kind of chaos rather than i think if they were alone would they have done it maybe not right you know the leader, maybe, would maybe. have. But nobody has to have a sign to get started. Like, oh, yeah. Nobody's going to do it ever. As, you know, like, if they weren't 
only to do it by themselves, it would have been brought up. But there's yeah. got to be somebody who, in their brain. Mm -hmm. After learning of these murders, Sam and Marie said that after dinner, the reason that they all left was so that the children could go play outside of their house, during which they both recalled seeing an old blue pickup-style vehicle driving slowly by multiple times. The vehicle had four teenagers in it. First, they noticed it around 9.45 p.m. Marie said she saw it stopping and backing at the end of their road, and they last viewed it around 11.15 p.m. when it sped by. Another neighbor corroborated this information by saying that they saw an older blue El Camino Chevrolet driving between 3 and 5 p.m., noticing it because it sounded like it had a blown muffler. Cool. And then another neighbor, so again, we've talked about this before, neighbor. Another neighbor from the reports that while walking his dog, he saw Phil in the garage between 10.30 and 11. And then after going to bed, he was awakened by screeching tires. So he went to the window and watched a 1959 bluish green El Camino pickup with a noisy muffler speeding down the street. They knew their cars. Oh my gosh, yeah. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. He's probably the mechanic or whoever. Or just, you know, the El Camino was like a sort of cool car, right? Like, and I don't know, actually. It might be nostalgic and it maybe wasn't that cool at the time, but the muffler situation, not the best getaway car. No, no. And that neighbor definitely had a keen eye because they were able to correctly identify the teenagers in the vehicle. Oh, wow. When the teens had finished assaulting and murdering the couple, they went through the house taking money, two pendants, one of which was a diamond encrusted, uh, one of which was diamond encrusted, and the other couple's uh, brownie shotgun. The next morning, Catherine's employee, Karen, Carolyn Schaefer, was concerned when Catherine didn't show up back to work. Carolyn called the police and then drove to the residence out of concern. At the same time, Philip's boss noticed that he, too, hadn't shown up at the pharmacy. So James Blomquist also decided to go to the residence out of his own worry. So two people knowing these, I mean, they had to be good people. And you know that they had to be, like, very consistent. And both of them were like, oh, they didn't show up right on time. Something yeah. is wrong. Something and then the employee immediately calls police and is like, yes, what's wrong? Like, they didn't answer. They're not here. Something is wrong. Yeah. So they both get there kind of around the same time. James knocked on the door and tried the front door, but it was locked. So he moved to the garage, and he was able to see in, and he could see Philip's body on the ground. The police showed up within five minutes of this discovery. Officer Hamilton was the responding officer to the security check the residence it was directed to philip's body by james the pair then attempted to get into the house whichever way they could and they finally forced their way in or door after gaining entry officer hamilton found Catherine, who was left in the upstairs bathroom oh gosh i can't like it's just so like you would never respect teenagers and would have committed these crimes. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely would have. And I mean, it's they're brutal and graphic. Yeah. And beating somebody in the head, teenagers, just bludgeoning him so hard that his skull fractured and, like, was deformed. Uh, it's, you can't. No. Can't. No, definitely not. I, like, it's just, it's so, it's such a, place that just doesn't exist in my brain 
I do want to say I hope I'm the type of person that if I didn't show up for work, people would be like, where's Sam? <laughs> I hope I'm that person. I'm like, maybe. I mean, our work has a pretty good history of when people don't show up calling. Oh, We've yeah. done it multiple times with people making sure they're, they're okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, as the nursing profession in general, like in the hospital setting, it's like, what is happening that you're not here and you didn't let anyone know? Like, it's regardless of if it, you were in your house and teenagers came in yeah. or if you just slept in. So I feel like other jobs, it feels more punitive when you, like, they're like, oh, they didn't show up, they're in trouble, and they're, like, angrily calling, whereas our work, at least our bosses are calling out of actual worry. Oh, totally. Like, oh, no, sorry. They would have at least texted one of the three bosses to be like, something. Or, oh, my gosh, I slept in. <laughs> Absolutely. Instead, we're like, no way. Yeah. What? Are you okay? 100%. I feel like my very first nursing job in New York, it was like, I honestly, I don't really think I personally ever, like, never called and didn't show up. Or, like, I don't think I, I was, like, terrified because my nursing professor had pounded it into me that mm -hmm. that is not what you do. You'll yeah. get fired. Like, but I knew people who, like, did that and they actually were, like, put on administrative leave. Like, and there was no concern of their well-being. They did not care the reason you weren't there. Like, you would have had, like, there would have had to been, like, the best excuse for it. And if there wasn't, you were screwed. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas, like, I, yeah, I do feel like this this job is so different. Like, there is a genuine, like, concern for. Oh, yeah. I missed a day once. And it was because somehow like the system some like one of my days got switched and I had all my days like out on a calendar and you know printed out like make sure but yeah. I printed out right after reading the set and for some reason I bumped to some other day and I'm like do you know you're supposed to be here and I was like no no I am not supposed to be here it wasn't like nobody was angry they were just like is there is there any way and I couldn't Right. We had the kids we were in the middle of something. I think one of them actually called out sick that day. So thank goodness, you know, I have the yeah. idea. And yeah. this happens. Sorry. Nobody was mad. Never was any, like, none of the bosses spiteful about it. Right. You didn't get an email. We're just glad yeah. you're okay. Yeah. So I think we were, that's the thing. Other places you definitely hear people being like, oh, yeah. No, that's it. Yeah. This is not. So one of the boys, Ronald Anderson, later confessed to just going along with the burglary. He reported that he knew Jeffrey had a pistol he saw it in his waistband. And that it was Marty who pulled the rope from the vehicle that was later used to tie up the couple. Ronald also told police that he overheard the three discussing that they might have to kill the Ranzos, but claimed that he wasn't involved in the decision. He does admit that when they arrived at the house, he did hear Marty bring it up for a second time, but didn't talk about it. Ronald's girlfriend testified in court that he was told that she was told that his role was to wait outside as the getaway driver. This next part comes directly from the appeal paperwork for Ronald Anderson. It says, quote, when Anderson's three Confederates went into the Ranzo's home, 
Anderson remained in the truck. According to Anderson, D.L. and J.M. returned to the home, returned to the truck about 20 minutes later with a manila envelope, leaving Jackson inside the house. D.L. and J.M. came running back and were excited. Anderson, who had the keys to the truck, took D.L. and J.M. to a nearby apartment building and then returned to the same parking spot. After Anderson picked Jackson up, they went to search for J.M. and D.L. <laughs> They found J.M.'s brother, D.M., at Lisa Swenson's house in the early morning hours of June 26, 1979. Swenson testified that Jackson admitted killing two people because they had seen him. D.M. testified that Jackson said that he had just killed two people, and Anderson asked David where his brother, J.M., was, and threatened to kill D.M. if he did not tell and Anderson. Jackson's father testified that at about 3.30 a.m. on June 26, 1979, Anderson and Jackson were back at their home and they had an envelope full of cash out on the kitchen table that Jackson had brought in from outside the home. After counting the money, Jackson and Anderson each took their share. Jackson's mother testified that while generally discussing the Ranzos, Anderson told her that it was a bad scene. It would have made you sick, end quote. Again, this is directly from one of Ronald's appeals. So it kind of lays out who did what. Like, they were talking to their parents about it? Yes. Um, I would be incredibly concerned if my daughter came home with a manila envelope full of cash. Well, and they talked about the scene. Oh, and yeah, I mean... That. Ronald and it's one of them, you know, kills the pair. And it was a really hard time finding information on how the group actually got caught and how it all unfolded. The reason I think for this is because there are recent events that we'll talk about that kind of overshadow. So anytime like I'm digging into anything, it's bringing up like the recent events. Right. Like, okay, but how did it originally happen? So I don't know how they originally got caught. I'm guessing that they put a bowl in after finding it, they could link it. Um, yeah, the the car, and then as well, just like teenagers talk. Oh yeah, I feel like clearly they right. went to the parents' house. Right, they they pulled they put the money out on the table yeah. that morning. Like they're not the smart. Biggest. Like I, I really hope it works. Honestly, because if my kid murdered somebody, oh, it yeah, I'm not protecting. No. Not unless you have a really good reason. Like self-defense. Yeah. Like it's different. That's way different. I would still say we need to go to the cops though. Like we're going to the police station, but I'm bringing a good lawyer. Yeah. Attorney's caution. <laughs> it did find uh, 1980 during the pretrial publicity called caused the trial to be moved to Sacramento County on a change of venue motion because there was just just so much information everybody knew about this case and had preconceived ideas of what happened. Juries convicted all four teenagers separately on two counts of first-degree murder and one count of robbery. Originally, they were all sentenced to two life sentences without parole, which an appellate court later deemed to be, quote, cruel and unusual punishment for a minor. So there's been a lot of reform, especially in California, for minors and sentencing, a lot of them that are life without parole or death or anything like that, they 
relook at the case and usually end up resentencing. So all of those involved were resentenced to two consecutive two consecutive sentences of 25 years to life under the youthful offender. Yeah, that just like in comparison to other people who have murdered someone and then like the sentence they get, like I feel like that it is pretty extreme, two life sentences. Uh, or, well, it's one for each of them, which is right. It's I, aggravated. I so it's aggravated in the fact that they also brought like the motive is robbery. They committed this while doing something else, but it's also it's not like they just stabbed him once, right. shot him once, left. Right. They tortured this couple. Right. I don't think there's a lot of reform left in no, someone who does. Like yeah, someone who's doing that. Um. And do I want them walking around society? No, I really don't. Like, you you had your chance and you sort of, you, you sort of fucked it up. Excuse, excuse me for saying that. Like, you had a shot. Well, then I got some bad news for you. Oh, no. So since their sentencing, all four have been eligible for work. Um, the family of the Ranzos continue to fight. And it has been, and they have all been to more than 30 parole hearings between the four people each time reminding that the board the board of the heinous heinousness of these crimes the fact that they were premeditated and the sheer violence lends itself to the idea that these men are not likely to be rehabilitated and shouldn't be given a second chance to walk free so exactly what you're saying that's like that jail for that family yeah they just have to relive it and like and gives there videos out there of it, and you can just see the heartbreak. Oh, every time. how many times do you have to say it? Like, mm-hmm. like how? Oh, that's like that is a twisted level of hell that they're living in, and that's like it's devastating. I don't feel like there could be closure with that because you're constantly like, there's no healing those wounds. You're constantly ripping back open. You go to these hearings. You can't let them heal. Because it, the second you do and you go into that court to, like, try to appeal to a judge or, you know, whoever it is that gets to make that decision, it would feel less, like, wouldn't feel less authentic because you live with it. But, like, you have to keep it raw. Like, oh, it, that's, that's awful. Yeah. Three of the murders have been granted parole previously, but all decisions have been overturned by the governor. Again, the family went to all of these hearings and fought fervently against them. Lee was denied parole on June of 2020. Ronald was denied parole nine times before 2017 when he was granted parole by the parole board. However, Jerry Brown, the governor at the time, overturned that decision. Good job, Jerry. Then, in December of 2021, the State Board of Parole again reported him as suitable and not a threat to society. And was granted parole. Newsom lets him out, doesn't he? The decision was again overturned by the governor. Ah, oh, good job. Fortunately, Jeffrey, so the main character, the 17 year old, the one that we think is kind of the mastermind uh-huh. of all this, was granted parole on August 23rd, 2023, after serving 44 years. Since being incarcerated, Jeffrey has earned his GED. He's also attempted to escape. By digging a tunnel in his cell between 2004 and 2006. Doesn't sound like it was successful, as in California, an escape would add an additional charge of another three to five years in prison. That's it? Yeah. Even here, I think it's only like six years or something. But you actually have to make it 
tell for it to count. Mark said about the release, so Mark again, the son, says, quote, if I could walk out of the penitentiary with my parents, let them free. But if I can't, do not let them go. Yeah. Quote. And that is so powerful. And yeah. that's true. Like he's never going to get his parents back. They ended their life. It stopped in 1979. They never yeah. got to grow old. They never got to watch Mark grow up, graduate high school, go to college, start a family, nothing. Yet these guys get to get out and continue living their life. Yeah. It's, it's... And at least one of them's married. Oh my God. I have yeah. I had to stick that in right now. Oh that's a whole nother scenario of weird. Like mm -hmm. but I can't believe it. I mean, I know I know California's all about like reform. They're even like closing jails to create like centers for mm -hmm. reforming inmates. And I get that and I am all for that. Mm -hmm. I think we are overpopulating jails. And there are so many people who just need help and assistance and give them the right tools. They can be a great part of society. This guy should never have been let out. So the attorney that works with the family, the prosecutor at the time, uh, she went on a few interviews and she says, I get, again, something similar about reform and releasing inmates early. She's like, it should be the nonviolent. Yeah. not the ones that are committing these heinous crimes. So we're just going to also release them out to the general public. How inappropriate and unsafe is that? Which is a fair thought. Like, if you're going to go through prison reform, yeah, I get that. I'm all for it. I'm all for prison reform. Maybe start with the numbers. Yeah. Or, like, in the state of Oregon, we have people who are still behind bars for possession and selling is now legal right so if we're going through a form maybe start with something like that where you're like yeah we may have got that wrong guys sorry like, yeah <laughs> they tend to be the nicest guys. right oh I'm sure they were just trying to get their community a little high and now they're like living their life behind bars yeah. now i can literally two minutes away from go buy just as much as they would have sold me oh like or more yeah. right yeah right yeah, so I get prison reform, but I definitely think there should be a system in place where we start with, again, the basics, nonviolent offenders, and then maybe if we have to work your way up, but it would have to be I'm some saying, pretty strict criteria yeah, for working. We on should that. have to. Look, I, and, uh, I really don't want people in jails, which is, again, not always a popular opinion at this point with you know, that's the, that's the story that's peddled is like crime rate is just high and we're all unsafe here in the world. But I don't care about the petty crimes nearly. Like jail is for people who potentially could hurt me. Like put them away. We, I don't want them. There's enough things out there that can kill me already. I don't need another human being the cause of that. Like put them away. And sure, I'm happy to spend my tax dollars keeping them there. Mm -hmm. I'll pay for their meals, all whatever it is. But people like, but they should stay there because I don't want them around me or my family. I'm pretty upset about the fact that this guy got released. It's one of the first things that I think Newsom does 
in his career that now I know of. Yeah. That I don't like. I mean, I get it. Uh, I don't think anybody's super happy about that, but it's all over the news. I mean, again, this is what overshadowed the original events the fact that all these parole dates are coming up and now are potentially releasing these people back out and Jeffrey did get released. So uh, at this time, like I said, Jeffrey has been officially released. They did do, so after the parole board originally said, all right, good to go, they did do a plea family lost that governor decided I'm not going to overturn it this time he will get out he's the only one so far Ronald Anderson is currently housed at Richard J. Donnelly Correctional Facility Darren Lee and Marty Spears are at San Quentin State Prison which also cannot talk about the fact that the first one we let out is the mastermind and Ronald is the one that got so if anybody if we're doing this quote-unquote reform like right. California says the lookout man's still behind bars, but the one that's actually stabbing people to death is one that's not out. Yeah, our justice system is flawed. <laughs> I mean, I don't think that any of them, they all participated in their own sense. Ronald knew that this was happening, didn't get anybody, but he wasn't the actual person committing the offense. So if he was in a good environment, would he do anything? To right, him? right. Because he just, like I said, tell him. Yeah. He, we he, let out the main country. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. So they remain behind bars, but we don't know for how much longer at this point. Potentially two lives. Like, they might just be destined to stay there, but I can't believe they let out the guy who did it. Yeah, and I, it sounds like in the near future, I mean, they've already Goldbart's already said that at least Ronald wasn't a danger and it was the previous governor. So it seems like if he comes up for parole again, which I don't know how many years it takes in California, I didn't look that one up because every state's kind of different on mm -hmm. when they decide, all right, you get denied, you go back in some years. Um, so I don't know when he comes up, but if, if they've already deemed him safe once, unless he does anything in prison. It seems a lot like they're going to say it again, and this time the governor will release them. Yeah. So in the near future, we could have at least one, if not all, of them out. Man, I like again that poor family, Mark, like who spent his entire life rehashing this over and over and over. It's like that's his goal. That's like his drive in life at this point. Like without knowing this man, and probably not his ultimate drive but he has had to go through this over and over again and now it's ended this way like what a massive slap in the face that must feel yeah. like how tough it's exhausting and who what community is going to want it yeah would I want no oh okay so at 16 17 you decided to just bludgeon somebody and then torture them stab them to death please don't come to my house yeah I don't care how old you are now. Do you make clear things? Yeah. I, I would never trust that they've changed. I would have, like, there would have to be, I, there's one case that, like, comes to my mind that actually was in California and it's reformed, uh, like, the interview with, I think, like, John Stewart do some, and they were talking reform, and they brought in someone who had shot someone, and he had spent 25 years in jail, but 
that was it was a little bit of a different scenario uh it was not like premeditated it was a robbery that went wrong and he had a gun and he used it um but i really like trust like he had done so much in jail he had went and he got his ged he ended up getting a higher level of degree he then started like a like a like a program to help support other inmates who were going through like addiction and they brought in like they've ended up getting like services brought in for these people and he like really like genuinely was reformed and he was able to talk about that night in his life as like a, a mistake and how he i remember him saying like i can't ever take it back like but i can continue to apologize for it over and over and over again because it was you know it's not the man that i am today and it's unfortunate that that's who i was then and i trusted him and i actually was like was sort of a great story but this is just i would need to hear him and even then it's the torture it's the it's definitely the torture and the level that they went to yeah for nothing i mean when they weren't on drugs they can't claim that drugs right you know messed up their mind things like that so i think i would have a tough time being like, all right, they're reformed, we're good to go. Yeah. In the back of your head, I'd always be, I'd be worried about it. Um, even my uncle, he did ooh, probably at least 15 years in Arizona. Um, when he first got back home, finally after everything, and he wasn't, it wasn't, it was mostly drug-related crimes. Yeah. And even then, I felt like everybody was watching him to be like, Right. Or are you going to fall back into it? And he didn't. Yeah. I mean, he did. He lived out the rest of his years. But did we trust him? And he's family. No, I can't say that. Right. We completely, I never completely trusted him. Like he you know, had many demons, many things that went right. on. And he was very open with what happened. My sister wrote a paper about him in college about what happened. Because I think I had written it to him the most in my life, right? knew this man top to bottom the things that happened i mean some of them are unforgivable i don't think his own kids have forgiven him yeah and i think that's fair but he was again not a violent offender and we still couldn't look at him the same so how are you going to look at a violent offender and be like all right it's okay like i don't think i could i don't think you can i don't think yeah yeah just knowing and straight with things like that i don't no, no, thank you. Yeah, I. That's, that's what jail is for. Yeah. Right. Like. Yeah. All right. Well. Thanks, everybody, to all that, those listening. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. To all those listening, remember to be careful out there. It's a dangerous world we live in. <laughs>